Well, for the rest of you, you're stuck with me, and uh, I'm asking that you would turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege again to be with you in the Word. Today, we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10, taking on two chapters this morning. Should be around 45 minutes or so. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you, and you will find our reading today on page 231 of the Church Bible. Just look for the big nine. Uh, The chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the verse numbers are those little numbers, so you can follow along with me. I'll also have those verses on the screen behind me, in case you do get lost. This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Let's begin reading verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other kinds that have been tried. We've come to one of the most significant events in the life of the people of Israel. This is the birth of their monarchy. You know from previous chapters that Israel has demanded a king for their country, a king like the nations. And here the Lord provides them their first king. His name is Saul, and he's taller than everyone. He's prettier than everyone. He's rich, and he's about to be a king. In Hebrew, his name means asked for. In English, it's translated Chris Hemsworth. (laughs) If Saul were alive today, there would be posters of him Hanging on the walls of teenage girls' bedrooms. He would be in the Pinterest feed of soccer moms. He's handsome, he's kingly, and he is what Israel asked for. But yet, not is all as it seems. Saul is dreamy, but he also has a dark past. Saul is a Benjamite from the town of Gibeah. Now, that probably doesn't mean much to you and I, but to the original audience, this would have been alarming. It would have struck a chord because just a few decades prior to 1 Samuel 9, there was a a bit of a civil war involving the tribe of Benjamin and the people of the town of Gibeah. If you want to read more about that, you can read about that in Judges chapter 19 to 21. I just, I just will give you this bit of a disclaimer. It's a brutal section of Scripture, a bit of the uh, rated R passage of the Bible. Israel had allied uh, herself against the evil men in Gibeah for this horrendous thing that they did. And the tribe of Benjamin came to their defense. All other 11 tribes launched attacks wave after wave against the people of Benjamin, almost completely destroying the entire tribe of Benjamin. In fact, so many people died that there wasn't enough women to keep the tribe alive. 
And so what did Israel do for the tribe of Benjamin? Well, I wish I could tell you that they prayed to God and God gave twins to every Benjamite woman. But I must tell you what they actually did. They ambushed and stole teenage girls from a festival and forced them to become the wives of the remaining Benjamite men. It is an ugly story. One that is the background of Saul, the Benjamite from Gibeah, who it is possible that is now the grandson of a human trafficking victim. So we see straight away this one whose name means asked for, who is dreamy, has a dark past. He is a mixed bag. He looks like a leader, but we'll see he doesn't lead so well. He looks like a king. Come to find out he's a bit of a coward. Today, the seeds of Saul's inaction will be planted Seeds that will later blossom into the very thing that will lead to Saul's undoing. Today, this human Adonis will be chosen by God, moved upon by the Spirit of God. He will wax prophetic. He will be praised by God's people. And tomorrow, he will turn against his own son. He will throw jealous spears. He will chase fleas through a desert. He will conspire murder. He will prophesy in the nude. He will consult with witches. And this, dear Israel, is your king like the nations. This is the best this world has to offer. What will transpire in these verses before us today are a series of events which on the surface seem random, unimportant, if not even a little uninteresting. But underneath, you will see the Lord is working, moving history along for His people, giving them the king that they demanded, but at the same time, paving the way for the king of His own choosing. You see, sometimes a river seems calm on the surface while there is a current moving gently underneath. The providence of God is at work like this in our lives, behind and underneath everything. And I trust that you will see this morning that God's hand is moving in this story as it is moving in yours. Have a good look at Israel's handsome future king. Let's pick up reading in verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And he passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin but they did not find him. Saul has lost his donkeys. I was tempted at this moment to begin using the King James version of the word for donkeys, but I thought better of it. So we see two men looking for something they can't find, and every wife in here is nodding, Good to see that men haven't changed much in about 3,000 years. They can't find 
their donkeys. And so we pick up reading in verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Well, that's also to his servant. But if we go, what can we bring the man? For our bread and our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I, I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go up to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And they went into the city where the man of God was. So here we're starting to get a character profile of the man Saul. And some of it is good. He's an obedient son. His dad says that he's lost his donkeys and Saul cares about his dad and Saul goes looking for the donkeys. However, this isn't a very flattering introduction to the future king of Israel. He's looking for lost animals and can't find them. Now, you understand the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they were all shepherds whose job it was is to care for the sheep. And here we have the future king of Israel, and he can't even find some donkeys. What does that speak to his ability to shepherd God's people? And so his servant suggests a man of God in Zuf. The city of Zuf, the town of Zuf, was about five miles away from Saul's hometown. And they're in Zuf, and it seems that Saul doesn't even know about the prophet who lives there. We've already been told in the book of Samuel that Samuel the prophet is known to all of Israel, and yet we have this man Saul who doesn't even seem to know who he is. At least the idea of appealing and praying to God to find some donkeys has never crossed Saul's mind. Saul is spiritually dull, among other kinds of dullness. So the rich boy says to his servant, I ain't got no money. I left daddy's wallet at home. Saul assumes that the spiritual favors should be paid for from this prophet, but Saul's broke, and so his servant pays. The strikes against Mr. Asked for, they just keep coming. Verse 11 to 14, we read that they stop and ask for directions about this prophet in Zuf. And, and while some of you ladies might, I will accept your approval of these men stopping to ask for directions. However, please read this passage with the eyes of a patriarchal society in the 11th century BC. Two guys getting directions from teenage girls is not meant to exemplify a man's leadership acumen. Saul's real pretty, but he ain't too bright. He's what Jerry Seinfeld called in his show, Seinfeld, a mimbo, a male bimbo. I don't know if bimbo is a bad word or not. If it is a bad word, I'm really sorry. But he's a mimbo. Saul's a mimbo. Well, it just so happens that they have come to Zuf at the right time. It just so happens that Samuel is coming out 
on his way to the high place to offer sacrifices there. And it just so happens that the lost donkeys have brought the future king of Israel to the very man who is to anoint the future king of Israel. And at this point in the narrative, the author pauses the story and explains that it is the Lord who has been behind all of these events up to this point. We learn that it was the day before that God spoke to Samuel the prophet. We see this in verse 15 to 19. So pick up reading there. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, that's fun to say, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. When Saul approached Samuel in the gate, he said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. A couple of things to note. Did you catch the repetition of seeing in these verses? Remember from last week, take, took, that word appears a lot in First and Second Samuel. Well, so does see. That's an important theme in First and Second Samuel. Notice that the Lord has said, I have seen my people. The Philistines have encroached into Israeli territory again. God sees the cry of his people. Samuel, the prophet, is called a seer. Samuel sees Saul. Later, Samuel is told when he uh, finds David in the house of David, the Lord sees, not as man sees. The Lord sees the heart. And then we have Saul, who is pleasant to the eyes but he's looking for donkeys and he can't find them. He's looking for the seer and he can't find him. He's standing in front of the seer and he can't see the seer. God sees, Samuel sees, Saul is looking. A couple other things to note. God tells Samuel that Saul has been anointed as prince over his people. The people had asked for a king and God is giving them a prince God will remain their king. They will call Saul the king, but God will rule them. They are still his people. Notice, four times in two verses, God calls Israel mine. My people. That will come up again later. Another thing, notice what Saul is supposed to do. He is to save God's people from the Philistines. That will come up later again. Last, notice that Saul is the one who is to restrain my people. The word for restrain means to govern. Saul will become the governor of Israel. Everyone's favorite word right now is governor. America, we love ourselves some governors. And Samuel reveals himself to Saul. I am the seer. He tells him to go up to a high place. He tells him the donkeys have been found, not by you, of course, but they have been found. And then look what Samuel says at the end of verse 20. And for whom is all 
that is desirable and is real. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Basically, he's telling Saul that God is going to give you all that is desirable in Israel. Do you remember what Samuel had prophesied about this king that they had demanded back in chapter 8? He would take, and he would take all the best things for himself. Because remember, we learned last week that a king can't give anything. A king has nothing. A king takes everything from the people. And this is what Saul would do. Everything that's, pro- everything that's wonderful in Israel, you're going to have it, Saul. And Saul doesn't get it, doesn't understand it at all. Big surprise you there. He's a Benjamite. He's from the lowest clan of the lowest tribe in Israel. And to increase dramatic tension in this passage, the rest of chapter 9, Samuel places Saul at the head of a giant table. The whole, pe- whole bunch of people come around, they're having a meal, and Saul gets the choicest cut of meat from the sacrifice. And then Samuel sends Saul back to his house, and he sleeps there on the roof. And here we see the future king of Israel is eating someone else's food, sleeping in someone else's house. And in the morning, Samuel wakes up, wakes him up, tells his servant to go on ahead of them while he will declare to him the word of God. Let's pick up reading in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three goats. That's a pretty strong guy. Another carrying three loaves of bread. I suppose he could have helped with the goats, but... And another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Lock that in your mind. And there... As soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So there's no doubt about it now. Everything that Samuel had intimated in the previous chapter is now revealed to Saul. He is anointed 
literally, Messiah, the prince over Israel. Samuel pours a flask of oil over Saul's head and kisses him, a sign of honor in pre-COVID days. And Samuel tells him that you have two jobs. One, you are to reign over God's people. And two, you are to save God's people. Reign and save. And just so we are clear, the fact that Israel belongs to the Lord is mentioned three more times in verse 1. It sure seems the Lord does not want Saul to get that point wrong in his kingness. Samuel tells Mr. Asked for King, look for three signs. Why three signs? Who knows? Saul probably spent enough time with this guy to know he's going to need three. Two guys at Rachel's tomb are going to tell you about your daddy's donkeys. They're safe. Your daddy's not worried. Three men going up to Bethel will give you two loaves of bread. The numbers are small, so Saul can count. After that, they come into town, and the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. Notice, these are the very same three things that happened the day before. Samuel is telling Saul about the donkeys. There's strangers that giving Saul food, and then Saul is anointed by God. Now, there's something significant in verses 5 to 7 I don't want you to miss. Gibeath Elohim, it means the hill of the Lord, is the same place as Gibeah, which I've already told you before, which we learned in verse 26, is Saul's hometown. So he's going home. And when he gets to home, Samuel says, oh, by the way, there's a garrison of the Philistines there. I don't know if you've noticed this or not back home, but there's a garrison of the Philistines in your hometown in Israel. Samuel told Saul, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Now, that's a very important phrase. That phrase is taken straight from the book of Judges. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon another leader of God's people, a man by the name of Samson, whose hand found something to destroy, you guessed it, the Philistines. And so Samuel is telling Saul, The Spirit of the Lord is about to rush on you, son. Do what your hand finds to do, because the Lord is with you. Remember what your job is? Reign over God's people and save them from, you guessed it, the Philistines. Samuel doesn't spell it out, but it seems like He's telling Saul that you are the deliverer that God has chosen to save his people. Take care of the Philistine garrison in your hometown. God is with you. Well, let's, let's see how that played out. Verse 9 to 13, if I have that up here. I don't. Just follow along. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day when, he, when they came to Gibeah. Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So God did his part. 
And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over? The son of Kish is Saul among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is your father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. When Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you guys go? He said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, well, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So everything that Samuel had foretold came to pass. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul and gave him a new heart, and he prophesied like one of the prophets. And this confused the people in his hometown who had grown up with Saul because they didn't know that he came from a prophetic family. And in verse 14, he goes up to the high place. Well, God has done his part. He has rushed upon Saul. Well, what about the Philistine garrison? Nothing is said. And then when Saul's uncle asks, where have you been? What did the prophet say? What did the prophet tell you, Saul? What did he say to you? Uh, He told us about the donkeys. And we came home. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not say a word. This boy had just been anointed king over Israel moved upon by the Spirit of God, prophesied with prophets, and his lips are sealed. And the Philistine garrison remains untouched, an outpost of pagan idolatry in the land of Israel, the enemies of Israel asleep peacefully in their beds. And their Savior, Mr. Wright, remains silent. Let's pick up reading in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Verse 19. But today you have rejected your God. Who saved you from all the calamities and your distresses? And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Sure feels like somebody's about to get spanked. It sure seems like Samuel's like, you guys, go to your room. I'll meet you there. You're going to get the king you asked for. But make no mistake about it. You asking for a king is you rejecting your king. The one who delivered you out of Egypt, the one who delivers you from calamity and distress, that one, that king. You just told him you didn't want him. You wanted a king like the nations. Well, here he is. 
And how does the great King Saul get presented to the people of the Lord? Does he come in riding on a white horse, clothed in a purple robe, wearing a crown of jewels on his head? Does he come into town riding a stagecoach like the Queen of England? Or does this king come riding into the city on a donkey? None of those things with this king. This is how the great King Saul is presented to God's chosen people. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the tribe of, or the clan of Matrites was taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish was taken by lot. But when they sought him, He could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? (laughs) I love this. And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people... He was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people said, Long live the king. Casting lots in those days was sometimes used To discern the will of God, it was a bit like drawing straws or flipping coins. Benjamin was taken out of all the 12 tribes, and Saul's clan was taken out of all the clans of Benjamin, and then Saul was taken out of that clan. And up from the people, he rose with the sunrise at his back. No, Mr. Dreamy, Mr. Asked For, he, he can't be found. They, they can't even find this king like the nations. Saul can't find his donkeys. Saul can't find the prophet. The people can't find their king. So they go back to God. Is there another one? Is there another man still to come? Are there two guys called Saul? I don't know what's going on. And God outs him. Look, there he is. He's hiding in your underwear. (laughs) And and notice in verse 23, the people ran and took Saul. And when he stood among the people, he was a head taller than everyone there. (laughs) Don't you just love Samuel here? Does anyone else sense a touch of irony in what Samuel is doing here? It seems like he's goading these people. Do you see him? Do you see this man? He's beautiful. He's so tall. He's so pretty. This is your baggage king. People eat it up. Their eyes had fallen on the man they had chosen. Long live our king. So then Samuel gives the rights and duties to the king. Sends everyone home. Saul goes back to Gibeah, back to the place where the Philistines are 
nestled asleep in their beds with visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. Some men follow Saul, but some worthless men are wondering, how can this man save us? And then the chapter ends with this statement about how this great king Saul handled rebellion in his kingdom. He held his peace. Big shocker. So what is all this about? What is 1 Samuel 9 and 10 tell us? Some donkeys go missing. Some mimbo finds a prophet. Israel finds a king hiding in the luggage. It's a random story with random details. And none of it is random at all. This story is meant to show us something about ourselves and something about the God we serve. This story shows us ourselves. It shows us that we're more like the people in this story than we like to admit. Saul's reluctance to tear down the Philistine garrison, it points to our reluctance to tear down strongholds in our life. Speaks to our reluctance to do what God has called us to do. Israel clamoring for a king to fight their battles is like our clamoring for someone else to do the hard work in our lives. Someone to come and to deliver us, not from our sin, but from the burden of our responsibilities to do the hard work of ministry. God has called all of us to do something tremendous, to make much of Jesus in the world just like he had Israel, and Israel is clamoring for someone to come and to do it for them. Saul's passivity exposes our passivity. How often have we abdicated our work to someone else? Well, someone else will pray. Someone else will disciple her. Someone else will give. I'm saving for a four-wheeler. How long before we address the garrison of pride in our heart? When will we stop gossip coming into our ears and through our mouth? When do we plan to confess to drunkenness? When will you take down that stronghold of lust in your life? How long until you confront the idol of security, safety? When will you be honest? about the state of your marriage and seek help? How about that person that the Spirit of the Lord has put on your mind to share the gospel with? When do you plan on doing that? That feeling the Lord has placed in your heart that you can't shake about going to the nations and serving the unreached. 
When do you plan on taking that seriously? You see, this story, like all the stories in First and Second Samuel, all the stories in the Bible are pointing to the central moment of human history. They tell us something about the character and nature of God, this God who is the creator of all things, who came down from heaven, who wrapped himself in humanity, Jesus Christ, who did everything that Saul didn't. You know, the Spirit of the Lord descended on Jesus the same as he descended upon Saul. But unlike Saul, the Lord Jesus did the work the Lord had called him to do. His hand was found being about his father's business. And when John the Baptist came to that man and asked the question Israel asked, Are you the one or should we expect another? The Lord Jesus pointed to his work, to his ministry, to his words. Like Saul, Jesus went up to a high place. Like Saul, Jesus was anointed as a king. Oil was poured upon Jesus and blood was poured out of him. His coronation came not by a declaration of the people long live the king. His coronation came with the declaration of the people crucify him. Jesus took responsibility for his people's sins. And it was his hand alone that stormed the garrison of sin and death. Jesus suffered the wrath of God deserved by sinners. He died and three days later God rose him from the dead where he ascended into heaven and is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, the everlasting King of kings and Lord of lords. Here's what this passage means for you if you're not a Christian. Nothing in Israel's story is random. And nothing in your story is either. God's hand has been moving and shifting and directing the affairs of this universe, the affairs of your life to this very moment so that you would come to church today and hear from some balding preacher about Jesus who came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Nothing is accidental in your life. You have been drawn to this place to hear that you must repent of your sins or you will be lost forever. Don't leave here today. Still in your sins. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you'll be saved. And then whoever brought you to church today, tell them about it. If you came here on your own, tell me about it. And I'd love to help you get started in this new life in Christ. What does this passage mean to those of us who are already in Christ? Well, for us, the message is quite similar. There is nothing accidental. There is nothing random in your life. The Lord has woven a tapestry throughout time with his marvelous skills, events in your life and my life in the world which seem inconsequential and random are not. The great weaver has been arranging every color and strand to create a masterpiece of his design to the demonstration of the glory of his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. And every day of your life, he's been adding pigments to this perfect hue 
upon you, this particular strand in his tapestry. The Lord has been orchestrating every event in your life to bring glory to his son. And so every day that you are given is an invitation to join him in lifting up Jesus and showing that he is precious and beautiful. Everything, even the inconsequential, even the difficult things serve to this very purpose. Every flat tire, every argument with your teenager, every positive case of COVID, every government order, every disagreement in your church is an invitation to trust Jesus as your sovereign king and to trust his sufficiency in governing the affairs of the universe. Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Every sunrise, your opportunity to show that Jesus is enough. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is king. As I look across our church, as I was thinking about this this week, I was blessed to see how the Spirit of the Lord has been moving how he has rushed upon the members of this church. And I see men and women delighting in what the Lord has done for them, giving themselves to the work of ministry. I see living stones groups bursting at the seams, needing someone to raise up and start new ones. I see hearts being opened to the gospel. I see broken relationships being restored. This week, I saw so many of you putting meals together for our sick, beloved sister. I see women getting together to study scripture and to pray. I catch glimpses of some of you putting your membership role in the back of your Bible so that you remember to pray for the people in your church by name. The Spirit of the Lord has rushed upon many in this place, and many of you are putting your hands to the work that God has given you. And the Lord is with you, and I know the Lord is pleased. So that's the big takeaway. Serve the sovereign God who orders the universe by His providence. But there is no such thing in your life as chance. That each day is an invitation to add your hand to the work that the Lord is doing in the earth. To trust Him. To tell the story that He is telling. About the beauty, about the glory of His grace in Jesus Christ. So many of you are doing that. Keep doing that. Invite others in to doing that. For Jesus' sake. Amen.